different family world. So tell everyone about Hit Different. Hit Different. Perfect. Can you go inside now and keep washing your barbies? Thank you. Hello there. I'm in the foyer. Uh, technically, no. I'm in the cubby house out the back of my courtyard. I'm about to get a job offer on the phone, so that could happen any second now. It's exciting times. I will tell you this. Johan Ponaya came on our show uh, this week, and he was a wonderful, wonderful guest. Somebody, Johan, I don't know who, Panaya, forgot to turn their microphone on. So we are recording from the MS Teams. <laughs> Sorry to throw you under the bus, like Philadelphia's doing to Ben Simmons. He did it to himself, let's be real. Anyways, this episode today has an amazing anecdote about AJ Matter. Johan was only 18, getting chewed out by AJ, and how Johan sort of reacted to that. I mean... Look who's still standing. So, friends, strap in for this episode of Hit Different. Tell all your buddies about it. It's called Hit Different, isn't it, Romy? Hit Different. Wow, she's good. Working with children, animals. She was an animal last night. Kept us up most of the night. But here we are. You've arrived. Let's get into this episode. Mwah. Hello, friends. It's Mikey Carl, Marcus Tig, and uh, Johan Panaya Mofaya Twain. Welcome to Hit Different, your weekly music culture podcast. Coming up on this episode, we're going to be talking about the kid Leroy got a scoot away from Scooter Braun. Marcus, what are you talking about, buddy? I'm going to talk about uh, DFA Records, James Murphy, the intensity of running a label, <laughs> and partying with your friends and what that means when that becomes your life in a business sense as well as, well as a creative sense. And label manager, professional cool person, Johan Panaya is joining us. We're going to get a bit of a career overview uh, about your hustle and your muscle and all kinds of things. Yoi, just give us a quick 30-second check-in on how you're surviving lockdown 6.0. Thanks for having me this week. Yeah, not too bad, to be honest. If last week, I was a bit flat, but this week, coming good. And just, I guess, chugging along like everyone else. I reckon everyone had a flat week last week. Really goes in cycles, doesn't it? Absolutely does. I think, yeah, because it just took forever for the grand final to start. <laughs> That's what it was. It had something to do with an earthquake too, perhaps. Well, I didn't actually get to feel the earthquake. Oh no! I, I was at the out, I was outside at the time of impact, and I've been told that people who were outside didn't really feel it, and I didn't feel it at all. <gasps> Nothing at all. No, my my good friend and potentially friend of the podcast, Scott Armstrong. Yes, I was no more than maybe four hundred meters from his house because we live close to each other. He sent me a text and then called me urgently, being like, "Fuck, did you just feel that?" And I was like, "What? I didn't feel anything." And yeah, so I completely missed it. So I felt maybe that's, I felt gypped. Um, not only am I living through lockdown like all of us, but I did not get to experience the minor earthquake that shook Melbourne for two and a half days. It's weird to think that something like as potentially disastrous as an earthquake was light relief last, last <laughs> week in all of our lives. <laughs> yeah. I loved it. And we're going to go from Scooter to Scooter. Scooter Armstrong to Scooter Braun. Just a moment after this music. Yes, we are going to be talking right now about Scooter Braun being left at the altar 
by the Kid Leroy after only three months of management. The Kid Leroy has bailed and gone over to Adam Lieber's Rebel Management. I love the Ari Gold entourage vibes to, to this story, by the way. Interestingly, because uh, Kid Leroy and uh, old mate Bieber are still on top of the charts with their track Stay, certified banger, the top of the charts for six weeks in America and doing the business all over the world. So it feels like they got together, made this track, and then something has gone on behind the scenes. So some shit's gone down. Uh, and they're no longer uh, together. And yeah, he's moved on to Adam Lieber's Rebel Management with Lil Nas X and Labyrinth. So everything's going quite well there. Lil Nas X just everywhere at the moment as well. Yoey, straight up, do you have any intel on this? And, and as a manager, how did you respond to it? And you're like, oh, really? Because you do converge management. You're like, oh, three months. Okay, something is amiss. Honestly, I'm, I'm not sure I could have less intel on, <laughs> on this. I did read though that um, Adam Lieber's management company, Rebel Management, is called that because Rebel is his last name spelt backwards, which I thought was <laughs> an interesting coincidence. Um, I, I don't know. That, that's that's is that intel? That's a fun fact. That's good. I like yeah, it. No, it's, yeah, it's certainly not intel. It's just a fact. It's always unfortunate when working relationships pass without knowing the inner workings of what went on. Yes, yeah, stay. That song with Justin Bieber is an absolute banger. And as you said, doing the business. I'm sure that this is maybe getting a bit too deep, too quick, but. I'm imagining when someone's ascending, particularly as quick as Kid Leroy is or, or anyone, that even when they have managers, other managers are waiting in the wings and doing the beers and shaking hands to try and get in there if they see an opportunity to essentially make money out of someone or, you know, poach, you know, coming on someone's turf, that sort of thing. Do you see that? Do you have experience kind of seeing that behind the scenes? I can imagine that people never quite feel safe in that position, no matter how long you've worked with an artist for. Yeah, it's always, I guess it's tricky like that because, I mean, people generally have contracts and stuff. And as we as we touched on, the Scooter Braun, um, Kid Leroy relationship broke down relatively soon. So perhaps while there is a contract in place, maybe they're in a trial period or something where you're able to make a move quicker than what you normally would. Ultimately, I don't think anyone wants to work with people that don't want to work with them as what as well you know what i mean it's like it's just not a good vibe it's difficult to say i'm not sure that i've ever been in a situation and i mean this with no disrespect and the absolute maximum amount of love for the artists that we work with i'm not sure that we've ever had anyone <laughs> so hot that little Nas <laughs> ex's manager was uh was hitting them up on the slide sliding <laughs> into the dms you know what i mean um yeah, I guess maybe it does happen. Um, when I was, must have been 20 or 21, I was managing a really exciting band. They went on tour with a bigger band. And shortly after that tour, the band that I was managing hit me up and said, hey, thank you, but we've decided to part ways. And at the time, I asked them, well, are you going with this other band, the bigger band's management company? Because I know that you guys are friendly now. And they assured me that they were not doing that <laughs> about four months later, mm. a nice amount of time, like a, a respectful amount of time <laughs> yeah. that got announced with that management company. I'm certainly not suggesting that there was anything going on. And that series of events certainly had an impact on where we ended up with IOU and the future success of that. So it all, it all worked out. But that was, I guess, one example of where, yeah, I felt like I did actually feel something like that just on a much much, much, much smaller level. DMAs is an interesting one because you heard the truth in their music very, very early before anybody really with Delete. Tell us two things. When 
you sort of showed that to Michael Gudinski. At what at what stage did he start believing in the band? And also, yeah, just just those formative sort of years. Like, do you still manage them, or is it they just signed to your label and you kind of um? How, how does that relationship work? Yeah, so we've never managed DMAs. They've been signed to the label for a, a long period of time now. The person that actually put us onto um, their music is their manager, Leon Rogovoy, and he passed on a bunch of demos. I mean, the thing about DMA is before they ever released their debut single, Delete, they had been writing songs together for, I think, two or three years. And the three of them are very, I don't know if it's lucky or blessed or whatever, but like they're so prolific and they work so well as a unit, but also separately. So the bank of songs that they had was just enormous. And it's not every song that they write is a banger or a hit or or is going to be used, but a decent percentage of them are. So it seemed very obvious to me as soon as Leon had sent the link over, I was was hooked. Obviously heard Delete, but Delete wasn't the stuff that, like, Delete was just one of the songs that stood out to me. There was no moment where I was like, oh, my fucking God, like, chorus now, you know, like. (laughs) um, I just got into that. And to be absolutely honest, MG was in on it from the very beginning. He was obsessed. He saw the video clip for Delete. The band had went and made with 600 bucks and their mate in their in the apartment that they were living in. He was fucking on it. You couldn't stop him. And then, yeah, the show began in many ways. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, you know, MG was, is a big fan of all of the artists that we work with. But there are a few that you're like, all right, cool. Where you could tell he was like, all right, I'm going to get behind this one and really push, you know, because perhaps he felt like, Certain acts didn't need his influence, whereas other acts, there actually was somewhere to go, you know, whether it's like Advanced Joy or Breaking the Rubens or, you know, DMAs or Jack River. You know, these artists that were like, all right, cool, there's a commercial flavour to this that maybe he can really get behind in and get over the line. And so, yeah, honestly, he was there from day one. I still remember a, a two-week period where he was going around with the guys and I to every commercial radio station, it seemed, in the country, and we're doing these fucking acoustic performances and stopping off in between, going from, like, Nova to Fox, stopping off in between at a pub just so that he could smash a pint and then, like, keep, keep <laughs> going, whereas, like, the rest of us are, like, sort of having nervous breakdowns in these boardroom <laughs> sessions and stuff. <laughs> he was on it from the start wow what energy to have to have around that who are you managing through converge management at the moment and also i want you to respond to this recent tweet from today from jeremy first who manages the teskey brothers where he says music industry be original be authentic also music industry copy this trend on tiktok <laughs> yeah that's good that's good from jeremy <laughs> i mean tiktok is a is just a weird and wonderful world in general. I don't, I struggle with it. I, I, I respect it as a platform and I know that our artists and potentially, you know, our label should be utilizing it and taking an effort in it. But as a 32 year old, it's very difficult. It feels like a very difficult platform to get on and actually be authentically yourself rather than, you know, no one wants to come off like the fucking old guy at a party trying to like, fit in you know and there, there are certainly ways to use the platform and you know that's something that we've been doing a, a bit recently with dmas and dz death rays and stuff have we absolutely nailed it no i don't think we have yet you know i think jeremy's thing of like it's, it's straight up true like it's, it's hilarious <laughs> and who, who's converge managing at the moment pearl so we manage uh rolling blackouts coastal fever belligerence we manage an artist named Al Matcott. He's like a singer-songwriter. Yeah, track mediocre. Uh, we manage a couple of producers as well, Constantine Kirsting 
and Scott Horscroft, who have um, you know been doing some good work. Con, I guess, most famously um, in recent times, produced a lot of the early Tones and I stuff, which obviously went on to do very well. And Scott is, you know, he's been around a bit longer making records for artists like Silverchair, Empire of Sun, Alice in Wonderland, uh, DMAs. Um, yeah, he's he's brilliant. Um, we also manage a band called Body Type from Sydney, yep. or technically Thrall, I guess now. Good band. Sick band. Yep. Who else we got? We got um, an electronic producer named Rona, who is yet to release music, but that will be coming next year. An artist named Vier Cloud, who is an electronic producer, a young electronic producer. I think he's 20, actually, who we only recently just started managing and we got put onto him by our friend Dan Market, who works at RCA in the UK. Vier Cloud, as I said, is a 20-year-old from the central coast of New South Wales who basically made a reworking of an old Imogen Heap song, which has just blown the fuck up. Um, It's got like something like 52 million streams on Spotify alone. The, the SoundCloud numbers are like insane. His monthly listeners are insane. He's only released three songs. We recently started managing him, which we're very excited about. We also manage, uh, co-manage the DMAs guys as individuals for their producer songwriting ambitions and stuff with Leon and friends management. Oh, I'm a hundred percent sure that I've forgotten someone. <laughs> No, it's very good. When you give those numbers and you sort of talk 52 million, I don't know how to bring this up, but I just checked Al Matcott's numbers and someone who you're sort of getting behind and that's, you know, say his monthly listeners are below a thousand. Is that something where you're going, you're, you're kind of packing shit and going, wow, this needs, what's happened here? We, we had a lot of faith in this guy or, you know, you're very much a long game kind of dude. And, and I think you guys, you know, you and Holly and, and Scott always playing the long game. But when you believe in something and it doesn't quite cut through, what, what do you do? Well, it's just, I mean, there are different barometers for success on each project, you know, and I think that's the important thing to keep in mind. As I said, we've only just started managing the air cloud. So the success that he has had is not our success to claim. He went and did that himself. In regards to an artist like Al Matcott, it was always going to be the long game, you know, like, would we have liked to pick up a couple more wins along the way? Yeah, a hundred percent. But was the idea to like get big on streaming and stuff was, is that a way of us like, um, I guess, uh, measuring our success. No, it's not. Like, um, you know, I think there is a place for rock music in, in like the DSP landscape, but it's much smaller than dance music and hip hop and, and pop at the moment. And I think without butting into it, I think I get too obsessed as well with, I was bringing up on the podcast about how, how many monthly streams are happening as opposed to looking at who's getting, you know, good syncs and just basically, in the zeitgeist who's talking about this artist and you know if the right people are talking about the artist and it's it's yeah there's enough of a buzz enough of a groundswell that it's going to happen absolutely i mean look to be honest like i can get i get caught up in it as well you know i think like i'm a competitive person i see the successes of others and sometimes that can be a positive and like use it as fuel to like try and like reach for something more sometimes that can be a positive sometimes it can be a huge negative yeah and i mean like you know looking at like monthly listeners and stuff it's not real. Like it, it can be also just indicative of which playlist you're in. Straight up. And I guess uh, overall, and this is something I have to try and continuously remind myself almost on a fucking daily occurrence, especially during lockdown, because we don't get to see this as much, but like we're in the business of trying to work with artists that have cultural impact. That's what we're going for. DSPs can be part of that. That can be an avenue for cultural impact, but 
it's only one part of it. And so, like, you know, that sounds corny and all that shit. But no, no, no. Jack River, look at that. Yeah, I mean, co- cultural impact, Violent Soho, cultural impact, DMAs, cultural, like, um, you know, th- those are the sorts of artists that we're looking to work with. And I think if you can remind yourself of that every day when, yeah, you're not seeing some huge spike or, you know, not every not every debut single is going to be delete. It's a longer it, game. That's got to be a bit clouded at the moment, I guess, because bands can't play live like you mentioned it in um that little interview you did with the enemy lately where someone like violent soho are just such a live band and like you say there's almost this kind of community and culture that follows them that is really really powerful and strong and they obviously you know make the bulk of their cash kind of in that way and through merch and that sort of thing that they sell at shows you mentioned that dma is one of the few artists that have gotten bigger during the pandemic because they were able to pivot to a little bit more kind of, you know, they've got that acoustic heart at the at the guts of their their music that they can still do, you know, streams and live performances and it still connects in the same way. That Do you want to talk a little bit about that and how you've, I guess part of what you do is constantly seeing all those shifting landscapes and figuring out how to like, you know, that maybe what is set in stone for a band like Violent Soho it has to change over time and you obviously have to navigate that with every artist that you that you have at any particular time that must be a bit of a head scratch especially when no one can play live music in australia yeah well it's definitely become challenging because now it feels like since covid hit and shows stopped the only activity that bands are able to do on the most part is kind of label related you know, they're either recording or releasing or they're doing a video or there's some marketing activation or there's something like that. You don't have the shows to like keep the campaign going. So yeah, that can get exhausting, especially when like, you know, we work very purposefully. We work with artists who don't want to compromise on what their vision is and how they, you know, maybe how they achieve that vision changes, but the vision doesn't change. So there's only so many ideas that we can do that feel truly authentic to the artist. And we know what those ideas are, you know, like we'll come up with some fucking ideas and before we pitch them to the artist, we know that they're going to say no because it doesn't feel right. Mm. We, still, we may still mention them, but it's like um, because, you know, I don't think very, very rarely have I ever had an idea that was a good idea at the start. It often needs to be like worked out, talked about, you know, and then you end up somewhere that you want to go. So it's really difficult, you know, and I think for, for certain artists more than others, it's true, you know, like we're working with an artist named Andy Gollidge, who's like an alt country artist who is amazing live and in Sydney has developed a really strong reputation and following off the back of his live show. Great songs, but it's the live show that I think it's fair to say has carried him this far. For him not to be able to travel and play shows in Melbourne and play festivals like Port Ferry or Queenscliff and stuff, it, there is like a little bit of a buffer and we're like, fuck all right cool well, like what we want to put the music out what can we do to like actually keep this going and yeah in, in some instances maybe there aren't solutions in other instances there are yeah, maybe you have to get a little bit more uncomfortable than you'd like to from an industry point of view it can be hard when you're releasing music and you're looking for that cultural impact but the only real measurement that you have is like what fucking playlist you got on and like how many spins you're getting played at radio and stuff it doesn't feel tangible i remember um like late last year when we had a the stint out of lockdown, Hayley Mary managed to squeeze in a couple of shows. And um, one of them was at like the Thornbury Ballroom, which was like a sick venue. I went there and I remember leaving the show and just feeling energised. And up until that point, I'd never realised how much I actually get out of seeing other people enjoying 
the music that or, and our releases. You know what yeah. I mean? And I, and for, I felt energized for like at least a month. I was like, all right, sick, here we go. Obviously, we're now going through another stint of this thing, but you know, we've, I'm looking forward to hopefully. Hopefully one day soon. Well, definitely one day soon because DMAs are going to the UK to tour Ayo. next month. So, um, well, yeah, because otherwise fans are just data, aren't they? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, well, that's how that's how I fucking find. Like, yeah, I'm like, oh, cool, we got this many streams, or like, mm. we got nine spins on Triple J this week, or we got Al got seven spins um, this week on Triple R, which is like fucking great. But like. You, you don't get to like see and feel, you know, you're not walking to people, you're not bumping into people on the street and they're like, oh, hey, I heard that new Al Matcott single. Like, it's fucking, you know, it's there's just those natural energies that you don't, yeah. you don't pick up anymore. And obviously on the flip side, artists are developing their own persona and feelings and confidence and ideas from those performances, which is a very different staring at a room full of people versus like a ring light in their bedroom <laughs> trying to, you know, do a, get a little good TikTok clip. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hundred percent. How fucking funny are those lights? Hey? So good, Christ. <laughs> hey, just on Haley Mary. So to even to spend some time with her in the same room, which which uh, so soon I did on the podcast about four months ago. I had the biggest uh, come down. Like as soon as the we finished, it was like, does that have to end? Like I was so just vibing on her energy, and because she's so you don't know what she's going to say, and she's she's so cheeky and she's so sharp. All these things. Um, she also said on, on it as well, Yoey, that you guys, the management was sort of like, don't put out an album. You, we need you to put out an EP. And she was keen on putting out an album and that kind of arm wrestle. How do you have those conversations with, with artists when you kind of know best, but you've got to sort of just lead them, lead them to that decision? Those decisions, they're never like made sharply. Do you know what I mean? Like there, it was like long conversation. I remember um, Haley's manager, Dave, and I chatting yeah. at length about it and just figuring out, well, like, cool, we've got this, we do have an album's worth of material here, but do we just want to release it into a vacuum, basically, of, like, COVID? We didn't feel like the project had, up until that point, she'd released a very well-received debut EP, but because of COVID, she wasn't able to, and we just didn't feel like the momentum was there, we didn't feel like she had the audience, and we felt like if we if she released that debut album, despite it being a great record, it would come and go very quickly, and then that would be a shame. In debut records in particular, there's always a certain excitement around them. Maybe media gets excited about it, fans get excited about it. I don't know why, but debut album looks good in a press release or some shit. <laughs> we were just like, we just don't, we don't feel like we have the momentum to do it. And um, Dave and I talked about it, as I said, at length. I think it may have been Dave's idea initially. So I wholeheartedly agreed with him. We were like, we're going to get more out of this if we release it. Originally, the, the idea was to release it as singles. Uh, and then we shifted into a, you know, a sort of seven track EP. I think it was the right move because when Hayley Mary eventually does release her debut album, as she deserves, there should be momentum and there should be excitement and it should be something that people talk about longer than just a release week. And we couldn't have said that that, that would have happened for sure if we had just put it out during COVID. Hmm. And that decision is, is being, uh, you know, I think it's the right one considering everything going on now where we're still... You know, we, we're in Melbourne and we've hit 1,500 fucking cases today. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, without being a Debbie Downer, it's, yeah, I think you guys have made the right call on that. In just a moment, friends, Murphy's Law, we're going to be talking about James Murphy ousting DFA Records co-founder Jonathan Golkin and whether there's a baddie and a goodie in this or whether it's all a bit uh, grey. Fine, hit different on Facebook and hunt down myself, Marcus, and IOU's famous Panaya Twain, Johan, 
on the socials if you like. Marcus. I love James Murphy. He has a messiah complex. I think he almost deserves that. Fun fact, he was nearly going to be a writer on Seinfeld. Thought he missed his chance when he passed on that gig. Ended up kind of having his second slash first coming with LCD Sound System. One of my most played artists of all time. God, I love them. What's been going on though in New York? Funny you should say that, Mikey. Uh, so James Murphy and DFA in the news this week, uh, as it comes to light, the famously contentious LCD sound system big brain and man behind DFA Records has ousted longtime label co-founder and friend Jonathan Galkin from the label, as in he changed the locks, kind of ousted. Murphy co-founded the lab- label with Galkin, along with UK DJ Tim Goldsworthy and in spirit Irish DJ David Holmes about 20 years ago. Um... I need to I need to confess here that part of the reason that I want to talk about this is because anyone who's read the book Meet Me in the Bathroom by Lizzie Goodman, one of one of my favorite books, one of the kind of things that you can just pick up at any point and it's just full of gossip and I love gossip. <laughs> we pre- we pretend not to love gossip. We all freaking love good juicy stuff. This might be um leading the jury a little bit, but um one of the fun things about reading it is that it really dials down into uh, what a massive egomaniac James Murphy is and how essentially he built DFA and LCD sound system almost through kind of force of personality. And the, the book is laden with quotes like this. This is from uh, Dominic Keegan, who, who is now at Creative Control. He said, I would never say James is my favorite person. I would say James is a complete cunt. I have a huge amount of respect for him and a huge amount of love for him, but he's a cunt and his best friends would call him that. <laughs> and can you can you quickly recap as, as to why uh, he started DFA as well? Well, he started DFA, uh, I mean, it's all, it's all kind of like whispers in the book, of course, but one of the reasons was to prove that, th- this is at least how the book frames it, one of the reasons is to prove himself, basically, that um, he was helping bands like The Rapture get off the ground he had Tim Goldsworthy come over from the UK to start meddling with some stuff. They actually started because there was a guy called Tyler Brody who made a heap of money out of the dot-com boom in the early 2000s, late late 90s, and kind of wanted to build a studio and build a space and build a creative space. And he had met James. I think he played basketball with James or something like that. And so James wanted to... He said, if I build this place, you know, you can come in and hang out. And that was kind of like their little warehouse party space put on events for their friends that sort of thing james started producing bands he was a live sound engineer at the time and slowly you know said i can do this uh one of the one of the things is that the poster boys for early dfa was the rapture and the rapture ended up signing to a major label and james was so pissed that he was like (laughs) fuck you guys i'm gonna start my own thing and then he started lcd and the rest is history jealous lover but one of the things in the in all the all the new kind of this new interview that's come out is murphy and galkin jonathan galkin kind of going back and forth at each other and and one of the things that you get from the book as well is that the history of dfa is has kind of been contentious um which is perhaps not a surprise when a label or any creative uh grouping i suppose is built from you know friends partying and being young and going fuck yeah let's do this without having an idea of how it's done or how to maintain relationships or 
how to not be on drugs and drinking while you're having a great time and you actually have to wake up the next day and like make some business decisions. In this interview, Galkin says, one day I came to work and the building locks were changed. I was really, it was a really sad day and the only information I got was that the partnership had made the decision to cut off the label and then it got ugly with lawyers involved. And then he said he was barred from communicating with everyone. And then Murphy retorts, I had to do that and he knows why and if he doesn't know why, it's because he just didn't listen. Anyway, there's a lot of back and forth in it. You know, you can tell that there's some... A lot of he said, he said. This is also James Murphy's one of the... Coming from someone who has a song on his last record about still being pissed at Tim Goldsworthy like 10, 15 years later sort of thing. One of the highlights of the the live show, ironically. (laughs) But also one of the things in his written statements is, as Galkin said, still thinking DFA is about parties is like thinking your high school band is getting back together given the right gig. Um, there were loads of fun, but in no way, shape or form was DFA about parties. And this is in reference to Murphy saying that he wants to still keep the party going now that Galkin's gone, rebuild the community, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, a lot of fun gossip, essentially. You know, DFA has been going for 20 years now. And when, especially with a label like that, that was so much founded on parties and electro clash and hedonism, I suppose, it's both amazing that they're still going but it's probably no surprise that there's been so many bodies along the way (laughs) (laughs) and it's not super dissimilar to how IOU started Johan where at least your own mythology says that you guys kind of started basically from putting parties on and it's it's obviously so true of like how bands get together and how labels start and how clubs get going all that sort of stuff was that in the early days does that sound a bit familiar in that at the time everyone wants to keep the party going and that's where you harness that energy and almost youthful naivety to actually make it happen but then at some point you kind of got to knuckle down and go all right we need to preserve this spirit in a in a little bubble or can or whatever but we also need to usher it into sort of adulthood yeah a hundred percent i mean like you know the idea of parties being the soil of a label like sort of sprouting i you know you know obviously true with dfa um i believe um you know the beggars label young or young turks i think they have similar things i their parent company excel recordings has a similar sort of thing with like old rave scene i don't think it's like an uncommon thing because you know, it's just young people bumping into each other and there's like an energy about that. And it's like, it was incredible. I think back back to the IOU days and the parties that we had at our house, they were, they were amazing. They're some of the best parties ever I've ever been to and fun when you know everyone and everyone's there. And there's just like, you know, no one's looking at a P&L and no one knows exactly where they're going to stay that night or what, what night, like what time loading is or a fucking curfew or anything like that. And it's like, yeah, they're amazing, amazing times. And to be honest, yeah, I, I certainly, as someone who is now 32 years old, I think back to the spirit and the energy of those moments. And it would be amazing to be able to capture that, but still grow grow old. As you get older, you start to look at things like P&Ls and trends and what we need to do to sustain, be sustainable. There was never a thought about being sustainable I always very like environmentally friendly, but um, <laughs> sustainable in the sense like it was just it was just not about that. And that that when it's not about that, 
I think that's when some of the most exciting shit happens. Was there a moment at that time where you had to go, you know, on one hand, it's like, all right, Gary, you get to be general manager. Um, Jane, you can, you can be art director, all that sort of like whatever, whoever's in the room that night at three in the morning sort of thing. Did you have like that collective that you kind of were bouncing off and could make things happen? Or was it more sort of like a creeping thing where it was like, actually, we've done a bunch of parties now. Like, I want to do something new with this. And was that always you? Or did you feel like it was like a particular collective? IOU at its core was always me. But there were people who helped with the parties. There's a guy named Tim O'Keefe who was particularly, like, our early parties, part of the notoriety was, one, the bands that were the bands and DJs that were playing, two, the fact that they always got shut down, and three, there was always this added creative element to them, you know, whether it was, I remember Tim used to work in the vents at Crown, he and our other friend Tom Fleming, my housemate, they would, like, clean the air conditioning vents, and... <laughs> Uh, for for one of our for one of our warehouse for one of our warehouse parties, Tim was like, "I've got this, I've got this concept," and he stole one of the industrial blowers. Oh no, sorry, not stole. He borrowed it for the, <laughs> for the night. He, he got he got one of these industrial blowers from Crown, and we used and use it to make a snow machine because he, he <laughs> filled it with those um little like stereo uh, foam balls sort yep. of thing. Yep. And it's like his energy and his ideas made those initial parties so much of what they, you know, what people, it's what people walked away being like, holy fuck, did you see there was like that swimming, like that that kind of massive <laughs> blow up swimming pool in the second warehouse full of like plush toys and stuff like that. And you're like, mm. oh, fuck, blah, blah, blah. So he, he was massive. He was a massive part of it. We also had a friend named Dan Monty who um, did some creative work on some of the stuff as well. But then ultimately, like the video clips and the music and stuff like that, it was always the band. So, you know, some of the band members lived in the house at some point. Others were just, you know, on the periphery. Others would always, you know, there was a group of um, bands from Brisbane. Um, it was Comic Sans, the Kairos um, and Last Dinosaurs, who then some of those bands sprouted off to be June Rats and Millions as well. Mm -hmm. But they would always come and stay at the house. Yeah, I IOU, it was always definitely an energy made up by a larger group. But at its core, IOU was, it was sort of my thing. It was sort of my vision. And like, you know, I'd always had, from the time that I heard about Below Par Records as a 13-year-old at a Kiss Chasey show, and I found out that the, the people that ran Kiss Chasey's label were like 18, I was always like, that's what I want to do. And so mm -hmm. that, this was my thing to do it. And then that's what I did with it, which made it easier to make, those sorts of decisions because there wasn't really anyone that was going to be like, no, I have a different vision for IOU. As I said before, that is not to discount the the many people that made up the energy of what it was because that, that was held much more than just in myself. One of the things about James Murphy, both the DFA and, and LCD sound system, is that part of his persona is almost being this cantankerous dad who, who is constantly trying to like let people go and do their thing, but then gets annoyed when they do their thing and brings it back and all that sort of stuff. Were there times when you felt like that guy? All your mates are freaking out at a party or whatever, the wind machine's going and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, guys, it's two o'clock. Like we've got a, we've got an interview tomorrow. We need to- it's Two o'clock Monday. It's, it's two, it's two o'clock Monday morning. We need to shut this down, like be the kind of like party pooper because you had, you know, you, you would have been the first one to realize that it's bigger than that moment in time. 
I would honestly, I'd love to sit here and claim that I did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I, was, um, I was like, where, where are you going? Many of those people listen to this podcast uh, and I say that it went any other way that I would get called out for it pretty quickly. Yeah. It was, it was, I was in the thick of it with everyone else. Part of the reason that, that it's easy to bring up is because a lot of IOU bands, especially in the early days and I guess thinking of bands like Violent Soho and DZ, is that hedonism is part of their brand. Uh, and that is a tricky thing to both market, continue, represent. And live. A, a really obvious example is like the DZ clip of them doing Jamison shots or, or, you know, Jägermeister shots. And like it, that's that's built into, and, you know, thinking of a violent Soho show where everyone's drinking pretty heavily. That must be a tricky balance as that dad of the label, as someone who is... It's part of the advertisement for that lifestyle. Well, this is this is a thing, right? And as I said before, I'm 32 now, and I'm. Are you 32? You haven't mentioned that. <laughs> have I, have I mentioned it a lot? I must have mentioned it at least fucking twice now. You look 22. Don't worry. That's yeah. You mentioned it four times. We're talking about the ages and thing, but we'll get to that as well. It's like th- this is the first time I'm definitely coming out of that period of my life which I have been thinking about a lot because I'm like, we are a label that is centered around parties up until, up until COVID hit, we were throwing parties very regularly. We currently have a fucking warehouse party that's supposed to happen in North Melbourne with like clam and Amel and the sniffers DJing. If it ever fucking happens, it'll be a miracle at this point. It is still a big part of what we do. And it's a big part of the culture of who we are. And I'm sure for the same reasons that DFA wanted to throw parties, we want to throw parties as well. It allows people to come and experience the label. But the fact is, I am not that same 22-year-old or 20-year-old that wanted to be at the fucking party, you know? Like the idea of going to the pub and watching Richmond Tigers get up, kind of. <laughs> Green room. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, you know, that that is an interesting shift and it's one that I'm experiencing now. Some of the younger artists that we're bringing into the label, this is the first time I've ever worked with people that like, you know, if I'd made some different life decisions um, early on, I could be their fucking dad. That in itself changes the relationship. Um, you know, Violent Soho, uh, I think the youngest one is four years older than me. DZ are a couple of years older than me. DMA is exactly the same age as me. Jack River, a couple of years before. So we're all in the same sort of thing. So now as a label, it's, it is really, really interesting shifting that relationship and yeah i'm not gonna fucking pretend like i'm the party guy anymore because i'm not and i look like a dickhead i've been thinking a lot about that and how we maintain the energy of what iou is and i think that comes with having to bring in someone else bringing in a new person a fresh set of a fresh energy to it not changing the morals and ethics of what we are or the looks <laughs> yeah yeah you know you can't it's it's not it's not sustainable. Like, you know, it's, it's no, unless I want to hold on to my youth, like some fucking Peter Pan character, hmm. it's not going to work. I'm guessing that you might've had this conversation with Michael Gudinski once or twice. I'm guessing someone as sharp as him would recognize the cultural space that IOU represents and know that that is a really important ecosystem that is IOU. And discussions about how to preserve that and as well as build it. A hundred percent. I mean, like Matt Gadinsky is the person that like brought us into Mushroom and 
you know, there are a number of good labels already at Mushroom. They didn't really, they didn't need IOU because they felt like they were missing out on acts, you know, like Violent Soho were already fucking signed to one of the other labels at Mushroom. They brought us in because they felt like we were encompassing a certain part of the industry, probably that more youth party sort of thing that none of the other labels were. I don't know if it's a shrewd business move or, or what, you know, they obviously saw that we were doing something different to what everyone else was doing and we still do. But, you know, there is now a whole new generation of young people throwing parties and living in share houses, bumping into each other, which is fucking exciting. And in, to, be, to be honest, it's fucking intimidating sometimes as well. Yeah. Because they're like, we got to like hold on to this shit. The difference is now that you can get heaps normal, uh, <laughs> low alcohol beer, you still look like you're partying, but you, don't have, you can still wake up fresh. <laughs> yeah, I, had, I actually had my first sip of heaps normal on the weekend. It was not bad. I read it. I reckon, <laughs> I reckon it's pretty good. Yeah, 100%. Tell us about the challenge, the challenges of staying in love with it. Because obviously with, with you know, the way James Murphy is talking about, you know, I, I can make it just as good as... People will not want to make DFA as as good as it was. They want to make something new. So with with IOU, has, has there been days where you've woken up and gone, oh man, do I really have to try and pull together a, a show at the MCG with with Stella Donnelly and Rolling Blackouts? Which actually would have been a lot of fun. But, you know, different examples of, of you going, wow, I've got to really... I've got to do 40 things today and I reckon I can get 10 of them done. I'm not as busy as, as that. So I'm, I'm, very, I'm very lucky that there's other people around me who will... Um, Are you a good delegator? No, not, not a very good delegator. People just like... It just seems to happen because people much more talented than myself are there, but... Yeah, fuck, man. Like, I don't know. We've been, the IOU's coming up to 13 years. The way that, that I have found that I stay passionate about stuff is just working with songs and people that we really like. The people that we work with, we love when not every song that they write is going to, is a hit and you're not always incredibly in love with the next fucking thing. But those moments where you do land on the record or there's a single or a demo comes in, that's when you're like, all right, I'm fucking, you know, I'm good to go on this shit. So. That ebbs and flows, like anything. As I said, it's unrealistic that someone's going to just constantly pump out songs that you fucking love. But that journey makes it makes it worthwhile when the ones do hit your inbox where you're like, holy fuck, we're, we're onto something here. And, and here comes the cultural impact, you know, that we're talking about. I think it's a good way to end that segment, boys. If there's something we should be covering on the show, hit us up. We're all on Twitter or message the Hit Different Facebook page, which I definitely monitor. Cough. <clears throat> Friends, in just a moment, Johan Panaya. We've got Johan Panaya. We've pretty much just been talking about your life anyway, which is great because you're a very interesting cat who apparently sends emails at like 4 a.m. to um, one of our favorite listeners. But anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> he just emails me at the strangest times. I don't know whether he sleeps. Label manager of IOVU, Converge Management, great operator. Party DJ uh, just just sends it all the time, including emails. Talk us through super, super way back the street press days in Campbelltown and the early hustle when you really were like, all right, I'm going to make this shit happen. I went, I got into pop punk or punk music from like a young, basically at the age of 13 and was just like completely fucking obsessed as like, you know, a lot of teenagers are. I Maybe I was a little bit more obsessed than everyone else. Um, and then just started to like look into not just the bands but the people behind the bands the logos on the back of the on the on the cd covers who what what were those and who were the characters making up this shit and so you know i started doing like street teaming which was a big thing back then joined a bunch of forums and whatnot like bombshell zine and stuff like that which was cool but yeah i honestly the first the first sort of things that i did 
was like street teaming, uh, handing out stickers for labels and stuff like that. To jump in, most people would start a band. Why did you, why were you so interested in, I guess, the industry side of it from such a young age? Yeah, so I, I did try and start a band very, very briefly, but quickly got told that I had no right to even <laughs> to even think of such a thing because I didn't, um, I certainly didn't possess the talent. And the person who told me that perhaps could have been slightly more tactful in their shutdown, but they were completely correct. Indirectly started a, you know, we're responsible for one of the most important labels in Australia. Were you a guitarist? Uh, I tried to learn guitar for a bit, um, and then I was like singing a little bit as well, but it was um, it was no good. It was no <laughs> good at all. So you were looking at the back of CDs. You were looking at what was happening kind of around you, your hood, and what did you start deriving from that, or what opportunities? Yeah, where, where I grew up is this place, Campbelltown, which is like an hour out of Sydney, um, southwest. So there wasn't a lot of opportunities, you know, and there wasn't like. There wasn't a lot of shows and stuff like that. What, what I did realize was that the local council, the Campbelltown council obviously had like a fund, which they were putting into throwing, putting on shows. So I started helping out there, just volunteering. Um, and that was like, you know, you work the door, you like help with changeovers and stuff. And like, I felt like I was behind the scenes and I was behind the scenes. And that was like this huge fucking thing, you know, like it was almost like an almost famous sort of moment. There's like bands like, I killed the prom queen and the the getaway plan, the hot lies and stuff like that. Most of those bands I don't really like that much, but it was still like this thing of like we're behind, you know. And even the local musicians were like stars in my mind. So started, yeah, started doing that, and then started also emailing a lot of people in the music industry, asking them for advice. Um, just like how did they throw, how did they start? Like you know, what should I do? Campbelltown felt very very separate. To, to Sydney, you're not going to bump into people in the music industry out in Campbelltown, or you would now actually, because it's changed a lot. But back in, in 2007 or 2006, 2005, there was no fucking chance. So Melbourne felt as far away from me as Sydney did. Um, and it turns out some of the people that I was emailing were in Melbourne and suggested that after I finished high school, I should come down and do like an internship, which is what happened. Who's the mentor? Yeah, there was a guy named Michael Panetta. Um, who's massive for me. Um, he manages um, or managed, I should say, Kiss Chasey, who were like pretty much my favourite Australian band growing up. I was really chuffed about that. And um, Michael is still like, um, he still is a mentor almost. Like, you know, he, he doesn't work in music anymore, but he's always been a, a very solid person to ask advice when it's needed and shit. So, you know, lucky person to have bumped into early on. But yeah, when I was 17, I also like after a while of like doing some street teaming shit, and spending enough time on the Soundwave forum. <laughs> Shout out to AJ Matter. Yes, I am not shouting. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, fucking hell. What a guy. <laughs> I managed to find AJ's email address and emailed him from like my high school computer asking him if, um, asking if I could tour a band on Soundwave. Mm -hmm. And of course, he had no idea who I was and I think probably assumed that I was from the US and he did the deal with me. Wow. And I, I managed to get some contracts for like some old harbor agency contracts and reskin them. <laughs> this is sick. Put my, um, my letterhead and shit on it. Amazing. Yeah, got the deal done. Who's the band? They're called Socratic. They yeah. were on, um, on Drive Through Records, which is a US punk, pop punk label um, run by a brother and sister duo named uh, Stephanie and Richard Rains. 
and Stephanie also managed Socratic. She also managed Newfound Glory and um, Hello Goodbye, who AJ Matter and Soundwave toured as well. Much larger priority than Socratic. <laughs> she went into bat for me probably more than once with AJ. You know, the bands went into bat for me. But I, I mean, like, you know, I put into the contract that the band was to have a local TM that Soundwave would pay for and then went on the tour myself and TM. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I did the deal with AJ in my final year of high school when I was 17. That's correct. Turned 18 and then three months after I finished high school was on the Soundwave tour with like the, the offspring and incubus as this tour. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. Learning by osmosis. Yeah, I think all the bands like kind of got a kick out of it. There was like this like young tour manager kid walking around with a clipboard and shit. But like I did, I, I'll stand by it. I did a fucking good job. I did my research on it and like I was shitting myself. Um, but like, you know, I, I got the job done. Did you have to make any, um, did you have any kind of like, you know, sort of like verbals with, with roadies, et cetera? Like, because they would look at you like this kid's a pushover and you're like, actually, no, we need the Marshall Stacks now, not in 10 minutes time. No, not so much. Everyone was okay. And I think it's because... If they were an Australian band, it would have been very different, I think. Mm-hmm. But they were an American band who had flew here. And I think like, you know, just if you've got an accent, there's a certain level of prestige attached to it and everyone treats you a bit nicer or something. I don't know. Were, they, were they surprised when you opened your mouth? <laughs> like, love the tigers. Yeah, no. <laughs> Uh, I'm not sure that I did, would have opened my mouth, to be honest. <laughs> I I'm certainly don't think that I knew what a Marshall stack was at that time. But I knew to, like, unscrew the water bottles and to not keep them near the foldbacks and all that sort of shit. But it was a, it was a good tour. It was fun. But then I got, I got stuck in Perth because <laughs> I didn't realize the part of the contract was that all local flights were going to be, domestic flights would be covered. But that doesn't include the final leg. Of, once you're in Perth, then it's assumed that you will fly back overseas. Yeah. So yeah. I was like, oh, where's, where's my fucking flight back to Sydney? <laughs> there was no flight. Oh I got God. stuck at Perth Airport and I had to call my parents and ask for like 600 bucks or something so that they could get home. Wow. That's a good literal coming back to earth kind of moment though, isn't it? You're like, I smashed that tour. You forgot to tour manage your own life. Yeah, yeah. You say in this recent NME interview, don't overpromise and underdeliver. That would have been a really good moment where you've come out of the end of that tour and, you know, you did a really, really good job. What's a moment early in your career where you perhaps did overpromise and you've gone, oh, shit, I don't want to do it? Because we've all done that, you know, whether it's in the bedroom. Um, we've all done it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think the context of that quote was about like our label and the way that we like to go about things because we don't sign a lot of artists because. We have great ambitions for all of our acts and the people that we work with are ambitious people. You know, that's part of what makes someone appeal to us. And I think it's what makes you see that in the other, in the other people, you know, these sort of shared ambitions of wanting to fucking go for it as an independent label with not a huge amount of staff and not a huge amount of finances. If you want to really be ambitious and go for it, be with the majors. You can't work with everyone because you don't have the resources, whether it's in people or finances to do it. So more than anything, we we try and work with a small amount of artists and then fucking throw everything behind it. Yeah, I think maybe that's the context. In terms of this under-delivering thing, I, I think definitely in the early stages, it was probably like, oh, yeah, like trying to keep this thing going, like bring more bringing more people in and just not having any resources at all or any real knowledge of what we're doing do you feel like a salesman at times because you know because the product is the, the music and you and you love it and because you believe it and same way Gadinsky, you know number one go you dmas like a, you know that kind of thing like do you feel like do you feel like you're, you're selling something yeah absolutely 
if I believe in something, I'll shout from the fucking rooftops about it until I feel like people have heard and listened and, you know, made up their own minds. It's not to say that people have to like everything that I fucking like. Yeah, until I feel like we have left no stone unturned, then, yeah, absolutely, I'll um I'll scream about it and and sell it and do whatever I need to do. I think it's my job. Correct. And you seem still insatiable. Like a lot of people, say, our age, 43, 32, kind of go, you know what, honestly, I've not listened to any new music for so long. I'm still just listening to The Stones and Led Zeppelin and Pearl Jam. You, you talk to people who just kind of like, they just sort of, <laughs> they just sort of go, oh, and they relax, and that's fine. But you seem, again, just ravenous for new music. It's part of the inspiration. You find an artist like Slow Tie and his debut album and how much of that you then how much energy from that you pull for it and you go and put it into your own shit. You know, like I'm obsessed with like his music videos, the things that he raps about, his social commentary, his marketing plans, all of that stuff. It's like that's what you that's where you get stuff from and then put it into your own stuff. Don't get me wrong, I I do spend a lot of time just listening to IOU stuff. Because it's like not not once it's out, like I'm fucking like, oh yeah, that's a great record. I'll listen to that again. <laughs> More so like you know, d- demos and, you know, whatever, the, the process of, like, getting getting music finished. But, yeah, I mean, part of how we make every release that we do better and we bring more value to our artists is by being inspired by the work that other people do and then repurposing that and putting our own sort of spin on it. You're one of the rare industry people I follow on, like, social media that will kind of retweet and talk heaps about other artists that aren't on IOU. And I always find that really refreshing because obviously that's one of the things about navigating the music industry is there are agendas and there's people that, you know, you meet in person and they're lovely and they're really into everything. And then like, you know them for six months and you realize everything that they're talking up is like stuff that they have a finger in the pie of sort of thing. And so it can take a while to figure out who's doing it because they dig music and who's doing it because you know they're trying to get a leg up and i guess both are really valid but it's i always find that refreshing when you see those people that are like oh my god this is sick and it's got nothing to do with them and you remember that oh cool well look i'm i i can't it doesn't happen um like it's not like a purposeful no obviously yeah i mean that's just like a massive part of how i approach things i guess as just a music lover and you know as i said we get inspired by other people and if you look at like the parties that we throw the majority of the parties that we put on like there's no iou acts on them Johan, tell us about out of bounds that you put on in campbelltown and it was sort of like a little nod back to your roots i guess i mean there must have been not kind of like a closing of the circle or anything like that but that festival must have felt like a little kind of like thank you i suppose and also a recognition of that area kind of coming into its own musically yeah totally i mean out of bounds was something that like you know i was thinking about wanting to do a larger scale event for a long time and originally it started with this idea of us doing something around the same time as golden plains but in the blue mountains and sharing artists with Golden Plains and, you know, routing it all in the same way that Fairgrounds Festival does with Meredith and stuff. And it was all good, but, like, and we had this, like, amazing space in in Katoomba and it was going to be great. And then I guess, like, eventually I started looking at the budget and I started to realise that this was a very risky move and that perhaps there wasn't enough in it or enough purpose. Like, why am I going to go and take this fucking risk just to put on, like, some cool event? 
that's mm-hmm. not enough, you know, because like if the event doesn't work, then it's not cool. And then like, what's the fucking point of like doing all of this shit? And I was like, fuck this. Like if I'm going to like, if I'm going to risk losing that much money, I want to do it where, where like I can still stand behind it and be like, mm-hmm. there was a purpose to it. So we sort of fucked that off. And then I was back in Campbelltown visiting my folks and my little brother um, around Christmas. I guess just being there realized that like, this is a place that I feel so close to. I haven't lived there in a long time now, 13 years I haven't lived there. I'm not going to pretend like I know it as well as what, you know, the people that have stayed there and built that culture up, people like B-Wise, Old Fresh the Lion, he's from Liverpool, but, you know, Becca Hatch. There's like, now there's a number of artists all from there. But, you know, I sort of felt like, actually, if I want to do a large scale event, why wouldn't I do it in the town that I grew up in? It might not have given me like connects to the music industry, but it gave me everything else that I runs through me. You're almost doing it for the younger version of yourself, aren't you? Because it's kind of like, oh my God, if I was here when this came through town, it would have blown my mind. Yeah, it would have been sick. It would have been sick. And so we had like a thing called Fisher's Ghost Festival, um, which was like literally about a guy that was murdered and then they reckon they saw his ghost in a creek and they started a festival about it. Um, <laughs> so And so some bands, some bands came and played there, but it was a bit like corny sort of, doesn't sound corny. Yeah. In, in, in some instances, it was cool. But ultimately, these bands were actually just playing at like an old fair. They were, It wasn't a music festival. So it's not, yeah. fair, it's not fair to compare the two. But yeah, it was kind of like, I want to go back to this town. And there's still a lot of young people out there. I think Campbelltown is one of the fastest growing um, regions. Campbelltown and the Camden region is one of the fastest growing regions in the country. And there's so many young people out there, so many talented people. At, but it, still, people skip it. They go to Sydney and then they go to Wollongong. And Campbelltown is right in the middle and it gets mixed every time. You mean in terms of like bands touring? Yeah, yeah. And that's just because there's no shows. There's, there is nowhere for them to play. It's not like, you know, maybe people would stop, but there's no fucking music venue there. You know, and the Yours and Ours guys, seeing what they have built down in Wollongong, the scene and community that they've built, it's, like, it's amazing. It's like Campbelltown should hopefully one day have something like that. I'm not sure that it's going to be out of bounds is the thing that, that does it. Although like we have all the ambitions to go back, but, you know, one day I want that area that region to be better represent represented and like thought of when musicians and the people that um, work with them are like planning routing and stuff but yeah basically it just came from a thing of being like all right cool if we're going to put on a large-scale event and we're going to fucking risk that much money let's do it in a, a place where if we do lose that much money and quite frankly we we did I can still stand behind it and be like, there was a fucking reason to go and do that. And I do Mm. feel that. I do 100% I feel that. And it was, you know, a lot of the feedback that we had from punters, the two and a half thousand people that went, was like, holy fuck, I can't believe this was actually a thing that came to Campbelltown. We Mm. thought it was going to be a bit shit. (laughs) Because once again, with no disrespect to the larger music events that have happened in Campbelltown, they're mm. often not music events. They're like carols in the like carols by candlelight and mm. like this thing that is attached to a festival for a dead person. Um, so it's like you know, and and that felt good. That that was the feedback. Young people were like, "This was a legit thing," and yeah. we feel this. Unfortunately, you know that we made we made a, a, a few mistakes. Um, which if we get to do it again, um, once COVID fucks off, we'll have to try and fix. And I think that is more just like. We did have local artists playing, but I think we could have listened to that the true leaders in the Campbelltown music, Western Sydney music community. You know, it's, it's a tricky first year event. The local police are on high alert. They are worried about some sort of some genres of music like hip hop, 
and stuff like that. But it's like the fact is people, not just in Campbelltown, but around the fucking world, love hip-hop music. And Western Sydney is the home of some of the best hip-hop music in Australia. Mm. I, I would like to think that now we've proven that this is a legit event and we run a tight ship, maybe we can start to like program some more some more of that. But yeah, th- there's room to grow. There's, it was the first year. We didn't get everything right. We got some stuff right. And, you know, hopefully, hopefully we can do, continue to build it and do a better job next time. Good man. He's legit. He runs a tight ship. He's been doing IOU for 13 years. He's been our guest today, Johan Panay. And before the bonus episode starts, sir, I found this from the 15th of January. It says, Yo- Johan Panay, few things in life annoy me more than when drivers give way to other cars that they don't need to. Just drive your car, Mother Teresa. <laughs> this is from the folder on your desktop of Johan, Johan's tweets. I th- I think about that quote once a week because I I'm I'm like I just I will sometimes almost just drive just so I can let people in. Just I'll go out and just that's my thing. Um, and I crack up so fucking hard at that. And I've I've read I've read that out to my partner at least four times in the last year. So uh, <laughs> th- th- thanks for the sweet relationship content. I love that shit. Yeah, it's it's a very Melbourne thing to like give way to people. No, after you. No, after you. Tram dings. Bonus episode starting right now with our guest, Johan. If you're a subscriber, it'll be there in your podcast feed already. You might have seen it. Get it free this Thursday. Please support Hit Different. That doesn't sound too groveling. And other mushroom podcasts covering Australian music by becoming a subscriber. Pony up, motherfuckers. Check out the show notes for more information. Bonus episode starting now. Hey!